Every podcast, like, like, what do we say we're gonna talk about? Tongue based retraction was Uh, what I was told. AKA posterior level propulsion. Mm. You don't like that term? Mm -mm. Oh, we already started. I actually don't like either of them. Okay. Mm. Okay, well, let me (laughs) introduce (laughs) the show. Are we recording already? Yes, we are. Oh, okay. (laughs) I'm glad that was organic. (laughs) Okay, so. I didn't know that was recording. <laughs> this time, uh, we mentioned that we were having a series on swallowing physiology um, for this Down the Hatch podcast. And the good news is that we happened to be at the Dysphagia Research Society 2019 in San Diego. So that meant we were in contact and around Dr. Katrina Steele, who is going to be able to talk with us about the next swallowing physiology event. The first one, if you guys haven't seen it or heard it, is about oral propulsion, uh, oral preparation, be it chewing or sucking, etc. And the next event that generally happens is some how the bolus has got to be propelled into the pharynx. Sometimes people call it posterior lingual propulsion. Sometimes people call it base of tongue retraction. Dr. Katrina Steele thinks it should be called squeeze back. Squeeze Ooh! back. That sounds like a dance from the eighties. I didn't come up with that. <laughs> I feel like that's a dance. (laughs) Yeah, I guess I probably think about this differently than a lot of people. Um, uh, But I was very influenced actually by the work done by Hiamai and Palmer, who looked at oral processing of foods and liquids. Mm -hmm. And they were like the first people to actually try to track tongue movement, which is really difficult to do. So they Mm -hmm. actually glued little foil discs onto people's tongues oh. and which showed up in the fluoro uh-huh. and hopefully stayed there yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um and they um came up with this model that involves stage one and stage two processing and stage two processing is what we're talking about which is also known as stage two transport correct <coughs> yes. Okay. yes and it's the sort of common um underlying a mechanism that works for liquids and things that don't need chewing mm-hmm. and you only need stage one processing if you're chewing okay um and so what they said is that the tongue squeezes the bolus backwards so before we get there let's yeah. just make sure everybody knows what stage one processing or transport is and why you only need it for chewing because a lot of people are familiar with the phases that jerry logeman proposed mm-hmm. with the oral phase which we talked about already mm-hmm. the second phase which is what we would call it here the other thing besides posterior lingual propulsion or oral, base of tongue retraction is quote, quote the oral phase which is right. essentially pushing the bolus back um and then there's a pharyngeal phase and esophageal phase so those are the phases but karen hime and jeff palmer also discuss things in stages which i make mm-hmm. sure that my uh, folks in my dysphagia management class yeah. know about. Do you mind just walking us through those stages really quickly? Sure. So in stage one, um, food oral processing, the bolus is positioned on the occlusal surface of the molar teeth and is, um, they call it triturated, um, masticated, and the tongue works to keep it in position. Um, too bad you're like these, you can't see people's hands when you're doing this. Um, and of course, the buccal muscles also keep it in position. And then um, little bits of chewed food um, get collected in midline and, and sent 
actually back to collect in the molecular. Mm-hmm. That's and the molecular aggregation. Molecular aggregation. <laughs> you guys have a question about that. If you look at the, um, if you're on Facebook or on Twitter, I've posted some videos about what molecular aggregation looks like. Right. Um, and it's um, some of the things I found interesting when they were talking about that is that the tongue and the jaw are in an antiphase relationship. Mm-hmm. So as the jaw is opening and closing and moving on every chewing cycle, um, when it's open, that's the opportunity for the tongue to move forward. Mm-hmm. And then it needs to move backward and get out of the way when the jaw is closing so right. that you don't bite your tongue. And it's this um, sort of back and forth movement of the tongue in and out of the oral cavity. So right now, because we're right on the water, (laughs) instead of helicopters going through a podcast, we have ship horns Horns. or whatever that is. That's what that is. Um, And so these, um, they describe these particles of processed food riding in and out of the oral cavity and into the oropharynx. Um, as the tongue does this back and forth kind of movement in antiphase with the jaw. So that's what happens with chewed boluses. Mm-hmm. Um, but with liquids, they describe a different mechanism where, first of all, the tongue contains the bolus. And I think you talked about that mm-hmm. in your earlier down Active the hatch. Um, and they talk about a pressurized chamber that the bolus is sitting in, can, you know, surrounded on the sides by the tongue, the back by the tongue elevation and and sometimes the soft pellet lowering to create a sort of seal. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they talk about the tongue generating um, forces that will squeeze a liquid bolus backwards. And (coughs) So um, this is the stage two, the squeeze back you're talking about. Okay. And then their work and um, early work by Ruth Martin looking at the x-ray microbeam yes, um, data yep. and then work that I did measuring tongue movement with articulography. Um, I have to be honest, I was surprised by our data and had to go and look at Ruth's data to make sure that we weren't, you know, we were seeing the same thing, mm-hmm. but the tongue is moving forward. Um, so I, and I think you've heard me say this before, but it's sort of squeezing, um, the tongue is bunching up towards the alveolar ridge. And it, I think it works sort of like a conveyor belt as the body of the tongue mm. creates a force forwards, the bolus slides backwards in the opposite direction. So just so we're clear, the microbeam study suggests that, I'm gonna say squeeze back, mm-hmm. <laughs> happens, um, in about in a very short period of time, mm-hmm. like 168 milliseconds or something like that. Yeah, it's like pretty that. fast. Right, very fast. Now, is it possible with this phenomenon that we're talking about, whether you want to call it basic tongue retraction, etc., that uh. some parts of the tongue, the parts that need to be anchored to the front to give the back the the push? Sort of, you talk about in um, it was the dysphagia grand rounds. Well, we reviewed one of your papers, and you talked about a swimmer. The swimming who's pushing, pool analogy. The yeah. swimming pool analogy. Somebody, you know, when people swim laps, and in order to get from one end to the other, they propel themselves by flipping around and using their feet to push the rest of their body in the opposite direction. So it's fos- possible that the feet that people use to push themselves off in the opposite direction when they're switching directions, because they've reached one end of the pool, 
that's sort of the front of your tongue, and then the rest is going back. Could they be going in different directions? I actually because see, the, ba- the back of the tongue actually is moving back. It's just yeah, not yet though. Right. Well, that's my point. So I was just going to say. I was just going to say in timing relative to the right. bolus. It's, it's a not. timing thing. It's so behind the bolus. It, that's a yeah, thing that people don't so realize. So I think that. Um, uh, the tongue is compressing forwards towards the alveolar ridge like a swimmer getting ready to mm-hmm. um, shoot off the wall right. in a backstroke, you know, yep. how you, you crunch yourself up. And is the purpose of it, it's really getting underneath the bolus to make sure that when the, when the tongue does propel backwards that it's containing all of the bolus in the oral cavity, right? So it's... The- I don't know. I actually think... Um, so I think of the tongue crunching up and forward as part of the whole mechanism of everything moving up and forward. So, you know, the hyoid moves Mm, up and forward, the larynx moves up and forward, the tongue also moves up and forward. And this is where I actually um, find it more difficult to separate the phases in oh in i completely time, agree right? they, they they overlap yeah or activity in the pharyngeal region overlaps activity in the oral cavity so <coughs> i think there's an all uh, an overall trajectory up and forward of tongue movement that is also probably helping to facilitate upward sure hyoid mm-hmm. and laryngeal movement um, and pharyngeal shortening for that matter mm-hmm. and then um, we believe that that um, as it's squeezing forward, it's that's generating pressure that that propels the bolus backwards. Right, and then I th- it reaches some magic point that nobody has defined. Might be due to bolus position. I don't mm-hmm. know um, that the bolus might reach a certain point. Um, Depth in the pharynx that it no longer needs to. Well, there's also the frenulum keeping it from choking you off and ending up way down in your piriform sinuses. I mean, the tongue can only go far so far. Right. Do you mean like pharynx. the but I'm, when I'm is saying, the point when it and then starts then it, to move then it moves because, backwards yeah. and so um whether this moving backwards and down uh, which chases the bolus down yes. mm-hmm. whether that is actively pushing is is really the I question. think it depends on the bolus and right? so I think you're right I think it can uh-huh. but I if think the to. usual model is that it doesn't sure. and Do you think actually it's guiding the bolus rather than pushing the bolus well That's I suspected I've always thought of it that way for channeling a bolus mm-hmm. a thin liquid down as opposed to letting it just slosh around however it mm-hmm. wants to because it's just going to path follow the path of least resistance mm-hmm. I've always thought of um, basic tongue retraction as for thin liquids helping to channel it so that it goes down perhaps mm-hmm. in a direction and in a form that is more cohesive as opposed to a peanut butter where you actually need to really push it down mm-hmm. so it's not stuck on the tongue. Well, it's kind of like a revolving door in a hotel, right? Like it's moving and you can take your hand and you can, you know, guide it, but you're not necessarily pushing it. Sure, correct. But it's moving at right. a certain rate it's that you're just kind of, movement. You're moving right, it could sure. push it a little bit, provide a little bit of um, guidance. I mean, so and I, I was actually reading through the abstracts for this meeting, uh-huh. um, and I noticed that there's one that's um, a ma- fluid mechanics model oh, okay. that's yeah. looking at to what degree the bolus um, sort of falls versus mm-hmm. is pushed, and yeah. I'm very that's interested really, to to go and see that he did, and yeah. um, we know that as the bolus sort of goes over the cliff, that it it has momentum, mm-hmm. right, and so Mark's work suggested that the weight of the bolus becomes very important at that chart. So if we if if we think it's more guiding the bolus, do you think that then maybe there's an overemphasis on the tongue and the strengthening yeah. of the tongue? And... What about the pharynx also moving forward right. as well? Well so I should just say as the tongue about? as the tongue is coming back and down, mm-hmm. 
um, it meets the wall of the pharynx moving forward mm-hmm. and we get an, a, we get a constriction. Yes. Yep. And I've always thought of that as a synergistic mm-hmm. um, constriction. Yep. And we know that, or we believe that if you perturb the system and move the tongue further forward, that the pharynx will compensate at least. Like a masako. Um, like a masako. Um, Which is the But how, right. how pressure, like how pressurized that constriction is is still up for debate well the other thing to remember is because our florals give us a view that's lateral we forget about the lateral parts of the pharynx as well that's also yeah it's all right so we're talking about the superior pharyngeal constrictor that actually connects to the buccinators from the posterior pharyngeal wall so those are pretty high so that's the muscle we're talking about to help constrict that area yeah and the velum is also sort of just smashed all in there really all in the middle so it's not yeah base of tongue retraction gets a lot because it's the most active thing we see on video fluoroscopy, right. it gets a lot of the um, the glory for being the thing that pushes the ball. So if anything's in the in the velum, it's like well, the tongue, base of tongue retraction. But actually, there are other forces that contribute to occluding that area. Right. So I guess I would prefer to call it constriction of the oropharynx mm-hmm. as opposed to yeah. the mesopharynx right. or hypopharynx. Mm-hmm. Right. But you on a fluoro, you a normal fluoro, you see no unobliterated space there and it the bolus is already down okay that that what you just said is the thing that really shocks me when i ask questions be it in my classroom after we've discussed the movements of posterior lingual propulsion or in clinical ceu courses i usually ask this question i say at the time when the tongue is most posterior during posterior lingual propulsion or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. is the bolus above it or below it? People and actually most people think say it's above, above it still. Yeah, no. it's so yes. it's the way which is, um, which, is, which is difficult because I think that they're thinking of it. It's not done yet, pushing it down because they think they give so much credit to the bolus, mm-hmm. similar to the pharynx, just chasing the tail of the bolus down. Yeah. Its job is not to actually do a right, whole lot right. more than that. So it can't be above and below the pharyngeal wave. It doesn't right. actually make sense. No, and somewhere I read about it sort of sweeping the remnants of the bolus sure. down. That's right. I like that. Um, rather than actively pushing the bolus. Because we have gravity on our side for the most part. Right. right. So I've always struggled with the... Because the, you read about clinicians encouraging their patients to think about pulling their tongue further back or, or <laughs> um, pushing the bolus with their tongue yeah. or... Right. Um, and I, I don't know how to do that actually myself. And I, um, think that perhaps the directionality of that instruction is in fact wrong. Right. Well, you will talk about a paper. Is it your paper talking about the instructions you give for the apropos determines mm-hmm. which, whether you get yeah. more tongue movement or yeah. pharyngeal yeah. movement? Yeah. Well, that's what my struggle is with the effortful swallow is that you're, you know, we're talking about the sequence of events with the tongue that's, that is, um, the timing of it is very important and it's, there's subtleties and you take something like the effortful swallow and you're just like sledgehammering back the tongue. Depending on what you tell them. Apparently. Yeah. Depending, <laughs> depending on what you tell them. But you know, when I give patients this maneuver and I watch it under fluoro, I find that it makes their timing all out of whack. But we've also seen patients together who have poor laryngeal, uh, poor, um, epiglottic conversion. Um, and right. from, I did talk about him in the ASHA talk, he had a stroke and with an effortful swallow, he had better 
epiglottic inversion because the force is on the tongue, which is another important part mm-hmm. of base of tongue retraction that's often forgotten. And not what, just not just the bolus efficiency aspect, but airway protection um, was improved. And <laughs> however, there are other people who, while they get epiglottic inversion, they also aspirate in that same yeah, swallow because right. they're like, whoa, where's my tongue relative to this? So they were able to physically move the epiglottis more. Maybe the pharynx is also involved. You right. know, we don't exactly know if it's just the tongue, but you're right. They're timing relative to the bolus position. The bolus gets deeper into the pharynx because they're busy thinking about what they should do with their structures. Yeah, yeah I think we're introducing a perturbation that is yeah. unhelpful, yeah. actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's very unnatural to think about what your tongue is doing. Right. Um, so, yeah, I... I um, so bring me back to the phrase that you used again. Squeeze, squeeze back. back. So, like but it. It, you're squeezing the bolus back, but right. the direction of the squeezing is actually rostral. So can I can I anterior for people who aren't familiar? Anterior and superior. Sure. Yeah. So, can I suggest that people think about the tongue and the pharynx in terms of pressure on a bolus as opposed to? Um, helping hands in the presence of gravity. So what I mean is in the oral cavity, the tongue plays a role as does the jaw in keeping the bolus from going into the pharynx when you're not quite ready for it or allowing it to go there Mm -hmm. if it's a bolus type where it makes sense for that, right? Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to guiding into the pharynx and the pharynx, they're basically saying, look, we know we have gravity. Now we wanna take advantage of it. The first phase in the oral in the oral component, you just want to keep it in your mouth until you decide, okay, no, mm-hmm. it just shouldn't be anymore. But when you do push, so you're going against gravity for the oral components. <laughs> and then during the actual swallow, gravity is, you can't, it's unavoidable. It's going to happen. So now how can we just help around this act, this issue of gravity and keep things going down? It's not so much like, unless you're dealing with maybe marshmallows or peanut butter, right. where this is an anti-gravity thing a lot of the times. It's, it's going to stick to a structure. Then perhaps pressure is more important where you don't want it to get left behind as opposed to you want to really take care of where it's going to go. Right. So I've always thought that those structures are expected to be so strong because they got to push every bolus back like a thin liquid. Oh, i got to push it back. When really its job is in, com- in concert with sensation so you know where it is, right. be the helping hand so that gravity isn't either a problem or facil- too facilitatory toward where the bolus is. So the other analogy that I've played with over the years that might be helpful mm-hmm. is a bag of frosting. So if you are not a very skilled cake decorator like me and you try to fill one of those bags with frosting mm-hmm. and you don't get the pressure <coughs> quite applied in the right way, mm-hmm. it becomes very messy, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you imagine then that your bag has a hole in it right. where approximately the nasal pharynx is in another hole where the larynx mm-hmm. is and you squeeze wrong, then you can see how easily things would go in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, if you actually, because I did this once, tried to set up a bag of frosting in a rig and um, play with moving the under surface of it up, like sort of compressing it like an accordion and then letting it recover, hmm. that's what I think is going on with this anterior surface of the pharynx, which is the tongue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and remarkably, at least in my silly experiments with putting in a bag, um, just moving the surface up and forwards did move the, the bolus backwards. Right. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that if you compress up and forwards harder or faster, um, you're sort of building a, um, a power potential. Mm-hmm. And then when you let it go, it, it rides back down faster. So is it, it – I have a volleyball – thought and it might completely go away is this like an analogy competition you're like okay i I see you're putting (laughs) and i'm gonna raise your volleyball volleyball game i know (laughs) well i was no she she's talking specifically about that up and forward Mm -hmm. i'm talking about what the tongue and pharynx do at the volitional part when you don't want gravity to get in the way versus when you want it so i was thinking about when you play volleyball and you just got the ball on your side and you got to do a little something with it you want to go against gravity but then when you flip it over you want to take advantage of gravity and spike it mm-hmm. down on sure. the other team okay so it's almost like it's like oral infringal oral infringal that's right. all a volleyball game is a yeah. oral phase <laughs> when it's when it's on your side and then when you want to deliver to the other side you bam try to slam, wow. slam it down but if they're good I will never uh, watch volleyball. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, so I do think it's about um, generating momentum in the bolus, actually. Sure. No, sure. Um, so with liquids, it's actually not a very difficult thing to do because they yeah. slip easily. But yeah. as they get thicker, yeah. then the tongue becomes more active in actually carrying yeah. the bolus, if you well, will. Well, and, and look at patients that have had glossectomies. Liquids sure. are a lot easier yeah. for them. I mean, aside from the obvious reasons, And that's right? taking care, taking advantage of gravity and just a different way by putting their chin up and exactly. once they figure out yeah. sensation is very important in this population obviously right, right? but put a bar uh put a jar of peanut butter in front of somebody that's had a glossectomy and they're gonna look at you yeah. like you're you must be crazy. crazy yeah um, yeah so can I ask you guys a question so I think we're sort of on the same page about the mm-hmm. importance of the base of tongue retraction for its job primarily is to get the bolus into the pharynx maybe it's guiding it maybe it's pushing it the bolus is ultimately the factor in terms of how much force it uses, etc. Do you guys think that the oral phase or posterior lingual propulsion or base of tongue or squeeze back um, <laughs> is volitional? Is it a volitional behavior? Because when we think about the Logaman example in her book, she has oral phase and then she has pharyngeal phase picking up with things like the velum and the hyoid and the pharynx and the UES and the larynx. Um, so do you guys think it's volitional or not? I think that there's a gray area between what is volitional and what's not. And how I think of it is um, you can't, I, I, I don't think that you could say that it doesn't have a volitional component to it. Um, I don't, I mean, if you want to argue with me on that, then sure. Well, part of but, volition means that you can initiate it at will. You don't need a sensory stimulus exactly, to initiate it. Right. And you could swallow air. So I think... Um, as long as you're in the early stage that I've described with the tongue compressing up and forward mm-hmm. towards the alveolar ridge and the moving the bolus backwards in the mouth, that mm-hmm. that is volitional and it's also modifiable, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I think the minute you then let go of that, um, you, the minute you change direction and the minute you let go of generating pressure... Um, you mean when your tongue recovers back after the bolus is now in the pharynx? Well, I... When the... Now the... The bolus, cascade, the bolus is, as I think, probably positioned right at the cliff or, yeah. or just mm-hmm. over the cliff. And then you no longer have to generate that, that anteriorly directed pressure. Um, as you change direction and, um, and start chasing the bolus down, mm-hmm. uh, I think at that point the volitional 
and modifiable part is probably questionable. Mm-hmm. Or um, d- diminishing. So the right. reason I, I ask... I don't think it's like a, you know, it's a clear-cut line. But, uh-huh. you know, as we're having these conversations, all I keep thinking about is how... Um, the importance of the sensory integration piece, right? Sure. There's so much sensory information that we're gathering, you know, the t- even that we're not aware of, right? The tongue is sensing what's happening in the oral cavity. We're not so is the hard super, super aware mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. But it makes me wonder, you know, what do you guys think about patients that have sensory impairments in the oral cavity or um, their processing of, of sensation is impaired is part of be having dysphagia meaning that in the oral phase you're having to use more of that volitional component you don't have those sensory um, mechanisms that are intact to just sort of um well so wait that that question's a segue into why i asked the question let me just say the reason i asked you guys that question is because when we do the perturbations where we direct a bolus right mm. into the piriforms in healthy people, meaning we bypass the oral yeah, phase yeah. for them. They don't get to push it back. I squeeze the bolus into their piriforms and I induce what we call an um, irrepressible Isol- pharyngeal swallow. Isolated they swallow, always yeah. have posterior lingual propulsion, even though yeah. it is not necessarily right. necessary for guiding the bolus, but I think the <coughs> reason they can't turn it off is because it still plays a role in airway protection. Mm-hmm. The way to get the epiglottis to at least horizontal as per Pearson's study it's still needed. You still have to protect your airway, even if there's not a bolus that needs to be pushed back. So that's perhaps why. And I can right. post a video on the Down the Hatch um, Twitter account and Facebook account because yeah. they they I always go they're still using their tongue. Now, I, well, I, does I that make sense? Imagine that they would still use their tongue. Sure. I'm not sure. Um, I see it. I think because in initiating the pharyngeal swallow. Mm-hmm they would still need to have upward and forward movement of the hyolaryngeal complex. Mm-hmm. And I think the tongue would probably Follow still suit. facilitate sure. that and then still come back down as it's sure. uh, recovering from that. So it doesn't surprise me that yeah. you would see things um, there. Um, and you know what? To support that point is that in those squirt swallows, which is what we call them, Yeah. They, the hyolaryngeal movement is identical to the volitional swallows, yeah. right? Uh, furthermore, the other thing is in patients, we've had a couple patients with oral apraxia after a stroke, uh, right. and we've squirt swallowed them. Now, they could not induce volitional lingual movement when we put a bolus in the, but on their tongue. Swallows but still when we did normal. the squirt swallows, they had a beautiful swallow. Yeah. So I think, in my opinion, this is, if I had to guess, these kinds of experiments suggest that it's almost like the the crux between the truly completely volitional things like if you're just chewing and mm-hmm. you know like I said you're an actor on TV pretending you're chewing something is just air all the way to the far more volitional things like UES opening which you can't just say hey UES open okay thanks close right. it's probably that sort of transition behavior that can be sort of volitionally initiated but the exact cast uh, sequence of movements you don't have that particular control over it like <coughs> pretending to chew your tongue you can you right. can really mess up a mastication just to play around if you wanted to but those movements you talked about the anterior the posterior movements there's mm-hmm. sort of the initial the initial movements yeah I can start it but how they end up going is really more brainstem at a certain I, point. I think For sure. So. I mean, if you look at the um, the papers by Andre Jean mm-hmm. in the early two thousands, once once this when they did the fine wire EMG, once the swallow was initiated, it was the same sequence of muscles that were activated. And, and he, he doesn't like 
dissecting the oral from the pharyngeal. He and I don't it, think you should. The oropharyngeal phase. I, and, I, I um, agree with you. I agree I, with that. So I think, um, I just wanted to get back to your sensory comments. Yeah, yeah because, um, I mean, first of all, I think we should be honest that we don't have good methods of measuring sensory function Absolutely. in the oral cavity or anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really complex. So um, I went on a journey at one point to try to see whether sensory discrimination um, ability for viscosity was related at all to strength. Um, and yeah. I had, I actually, Mark mm-hmm. Nicosia, who yeah. you mentioned before, had argued that the tongue works like a viscometer. Right. And that like um, during that oral phase that we pick up information about the bolus mm-hmm. that we then use to guide mm-hmm. the forces that we generate with the tongue. Sure. So it, that it's a very um, sort of reciprocal thing. Mm-hmm. And so I had this idea that if you had tongue weakness, maybe you would have a um, a blunter instrument um, for for sensory mm-hmm. function. We couldn't find that relationship. Okay. And I think what we did find was that in the people that we looked at, that sensory discrimination of viscosity is a very fine instrument. Can I just say that this question you're asking, Alicia, to me is what I always say, this is what the clinical bedside swallow is for, mm. that the clinical bedside evaluation mm-hmm. is for. So, so, uh, sensation does not have to be ignored. Can we just see if we're all on the same page that when we're talking about the behavior we actually sat down to talk about, then we can move on mm-hmm. to sensation. Absolutely. <laughs> sure. That that behavior that has four names now, yes. right, cannot be adequately assessed in terms of where the tongue was and whether it delayed, um, et cetera, at the bedside? Absolutely. No. You can't see it. Okay. And I, um, the other thing I was going to say is that to me, when the hypopharynx occludes, mm-hmm. um, it's the first in the series of, of downward um, occlusions. That mm-hmm. the, the the wave of uh, I don't. There's arguments about whether you can call it peristaltic or not, or mm-hmm. should, but this wave of occlusion that chases the bolus down. And, mm-hmm. um, and so um, for a while, I've thought it really is part of the pharyngeal constriction phenomenon. Mm-hmm. It's just the highest point of that that yeah. we see. Um, and so we've been looking lately, um, because when we capture the event of pharyngeal constriction in our fluoro rating, it's not this event. It's a lower event. It's constriction um, just above the UES. And so we've been watching some boluses lately to sort of see, do you ever get a pattern where um, the occlusion has already released in the top before you get occlusion at the bottom? And mm. we don't tend to see that. Okay. Um, and so I, when you do see a swallow where there's poor constriction anywhere in the pharynx, but certainly this base of tongue region, mm-hmm. It jumps out at you as something really, really on odd. video fluoro. Yeah, yeah. What it do you is... think? What, so we are everything we're talking about <coughs> that we know about this phenomenon is it's based on fluoro. video fluoroscopic studies. Maybe they'll put radio opaque markers. Maybe they yeah. won't. But and there's also high resolution manometry, which we haven't talked about. I don't think that yeah. it, we have time for that. But what do you think about? So we are saying no, we can't assess this phenomenon at the bedside, yes, you can assess it on floral. What do you think about these? 
I think that, uh, so I should start by saying that I don't do fees for regulatory barrier reasons in my province. Um, in Canada. In Canada. Um, but my assumption is that under normal circumstances that this um, obs- occlusion of the region around the tip of the scope mm-hmm. is precisely what causes, starts to cause the whiteout phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the epiglottis is also playing a role in that. And so I think that in the case of healthy occlusion of this area, you probably wouldn't be able to get much information because you would have white out. Right. Um, in the case of absent constriction of this region, I guess you would see it. So you said um, it's a binomial thing. Yeah. It's, that yeah. It's, it's more information than the clinical bedside, but yes. it's not the information you get on video fluoroscopy. You can say there was zero occlusion in the swallow. And you can say suggesting, I mean, we could see the tongue, see the bowls went through, the UES opened, but there's no base of tongue. Yeah, so and I guess um, the other thing I know about fees is, of course, that you people um, can see bolus aggregating in yes. the vollecula yes. on fees. And, but we don't um, know why. Um, you mean under a circumstance where it should, like in a... a under a circumstance where it should uh-huh. or under a circumstance where a person is, is deliberately trying to aggregate right. stuff in the pharynx. Sure. Um, the ability to see that is not failure of this mechanism. Right, sure. Right. Right. So, I just so this mechanism happens When you say this mechanism, you're talking about the four name thing we yes. we sat down to talk about right. based yes. on our traction. So just because okay. you see bolus pooling, collecting, yeah. aggregating in the vollecula, is not because there's an inability sure. to retract the tongue or close the right. sure. lumen. Sure. Um, because it that is, it still has to come. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And I think it's important to make the distinction that there are patients that have. Um, impairments in their oral phase where they can't hold it in their oral sure. cavity and they do have what's the term we want to use premature spilling yeah there's nothing wrong with that term loss of bolus control whatever yeah. you want to call it <laughs> when you do see that though in fees you really don't know right whether why, why what's you happening know what the physiology there. it could is. be a, it could be normal it could it be could that it could be normal it could be that it's a mixed consistency and you are allowing that yeah. to drip back yeah. or it could be that you don't have control of it and you want to and you right. should but you can't feel it we don't right. know so what i hear of a course lot we from... can't we can't tell sensation on any of these except for the bedside right right <laughs> right so tell me what you guys think about this because what i hear a lot from fees um, providers is that the way to control for that is that they tell their patients to hold the bolus in their mouth and if they see premature spillage, then it infers that mm-hmm. there is impairment. So I agree. So, I agree with the idea that under any circumstance where you tell someone to hold a bolus and they're unable, be it floral or fees, the presence of that spillage suggests something in that task. But even if it happened during a swallow, I still on floral can identify was it a movement issue with a tongue down. I can at least see what happened when they let it slip back but it still doesn't tell you what would happen in a swallow, right? During that yeah. task, you can say in that task, both imaging tells you, oh, I see it spilling back. One says perhaps why, mm-hmm. that's the fluoro, but neither tells you, uh, neither yeah. of them can, uh, they both can't tell you what happens during a swallow if there's whiteout, only fluoro can tell yeah. you that. So we've tried to play with this mm-hmm. uh, bolus hold yeah. task to, with the goal of trying to measure the integrity of oral bolus containment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, arguably our method involves cognitive components right. that 
could easily sure. be it so it's it's really like it's a command swallow paradigm right. um and we say oh we put a 10 mil bolus in the mouth in the studies that we did this mm-hmm. in and said, we want you to hold it for five seconds. Um, I believe we even counted out loud for them. One, two, three, four, mm-hmm. five. So we're giving them all sorts of cues. Mm-hmm. And then we said, okay, now swallow as opposed to, well, and so the thought was that if we saw people lose the bolus into the pharynx when they're supposed to be doing that, that there was something really wrong. Um, with the bolus containment task. mechanism in that task with the cognitive overlay, <laughs> right. um, and and we were able to replicate Stephanie Daniels' work that showed that of course this cognitive attention to holding the bolus works mm-hmm. largely, and the command swallow has the same um, effect sure. that the bolus stays higher. Yeah. Um, so this is this is basically I like that task. I think yeah. that's a great task. It's just like anything that starts out super volitional to the point where it becomes part of their movements. If you're thinking about somebody who needs to go from the bed to a wheelchair and you have to make it highly cognitive, first lock the chair, yeah. then yeah. make sure this, right. then apply weight. And then there's a point where they do those steps without you needing to do it and it translates to a smooth sequential movement, mm-hmm. perhaps skill learning. Yeah. I think that task is great. If that's, if it helps the person. But the issue is training them away from it without imaging. Well, and the other thing is I don't think that our study where we did this really stressed the system enough, right? So... Um, you didn't we, have a large enough bolus and a long enough Correct, <laughs> correct. I mean, I would have liked to put a 50 mil yeah. bolus in the mouth the and see if they can still do happen. it. But um, the people in our on our ethics board and everything were a little nervous. And yeah, so sure. I'd still like to go and do that. Um, but I, so I think 10 mils really doesn't challenge the system enough. Yeah. Yeah. And But it at least is a marker for people who can't even do 10 mils, right? Yes, yes. I mean, we at least learn something right. about people where, oh my God, 10 mils, they couldn't keep that in their mouth. Right. And then the other thing that I have come to the opinion of, but you may disagree, is that, because um, people always want to tease apart premature spill from delay. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be us. Right? <laughs> so, you are surrounded. My, my, my hypothesis, my speculation is that in a healthy system, mm-hmm. when bolus arrives in the pharynx, no matter how it got there, yep. whether it got there by surprise or by intent, intent mm-hmm. that the time to swallow onset is very, very tight. And so that if we see bolus get into the pharynx and nothing happens, mm-hmm. whether it got there intentionally or by accident, mm-hmm. that to me is abnormality in initiation of the, of the expected response. And so that to me is more on the delay side than the bolus control side. And mm-hmm. I think the two can coexist. Oh, I agree with that. Um, and I, I think that they become very difficult to tease apart. Yeah. I think there's I certainly a point where in our study about chewing ice, yes, um, barium, yes. where they are so busy with stuff in the oral cavity, that's that pooled liquid has been in their piriform for quite a while. <coughs> However long it chews them to takes them to feel like, okay, this is sufficiently chewed. So, so I think there are bolus types where in healthy people, the bolus yes. can be in their piriform yes. for a while. But there and are chewing, several... Uh, chewing, are, chewing, chewing is, sure. is the issue, I think. And Agreed. so I think our brain. But you're right. If it was just like a, a yeah. 30 chewing. ml bolus, in healthy people, yeah. even if you initiate with a bolus in the piriform, you're right. It is very tight. Yeah. I If you watch yourself when you're eating a meal and you're chewing, 
you never swallow while you're chewing. You always stop chewing before you swallow. And so if the command is actually to keep chewing, then people will aggregate. Yes. Right? And and they will wait till a point where they feel they can take a break in chewing Mm -hmm. to initiate the swallow. But it's not just chewing. It's any oral. It's only if you're sucking through a straw, you have to stop in order to actually swallow. So this is why I never understood. And maybe I misunderstood some of... um, uh, some of Palmer's work is that this idea that everything is happening at the same time, which I've seen people say, like, these phases aren't actually phases. I do at least think that the volitional component of oral processing, whatever that is, like getting the bolus, the part where you can propel it back, yeah, that can first. happen at the same, it cannot happen at the same time of a swallow. You pause that oral business to swallow and then you pick up immediately. Yes. So mm-hmm. uh, there are yes. at least two distinct things that cannot coincide, and that's the volitional stuff to get it back, and then the swallow. Right. Right. But and I, your tongue can't be in the way when you're exactly. Chewing. Right. Exactly. But I agree with you about the swallow reaction time being really tight. And you, when you look at healthy people, that if the bolus does reach the piriform sciences in those instances it's still one to two frames from when it's past the ramus of the mandible when highway burst occurs. Like, it happens really quickly. So wait, what, you're what, making, wait, you're what giving you guys us are doing? segue for my talk on say, Saturday. Wait, no, you're even, that's our do next you, do, do you agree or, or disagree? Oh, um, so uh, the first thing I want to say is that there's a difference between measuring time to swallow initiation, yep. whether you call that swallow reaction time, which uh-huh. I do at the mm-hmm, moment, mm-hmm. or whether you call it stage transition duration, yeah, or whatever you want to call it. Um, versus measuring where the head of the bolus Absolutely. is at. Absolutely, 100%. Yes. And our, we've, we have a paper coming out in JSLHR in the next couple of weeks um, where we've sort of been rewriting the textbook on normal swallowing. Cool. And, um, and we replicated the finding that Dr. Martin Harris originally used mm-hmm. as the basis. For, she didn't like to measure timing because she found it to be variable. We've, timing of what? Of swallow onset. Okay. Using um, not where is the bolus at the source. She swallow. used that. You're talking about the 2007 paper yes. where she showed that the swallow can initiate with the bolus at various phases Correct. from the oral cavity yes. all the way to piriform. So we found that um, the bolus, uh, the, the onset of hyoid burst, which is our event of pharyngeal swallow onset, yes. yep. um, occurred with the bolus at or above the ramus of the mandible. Mm-hmm only 25% of the yes, time. Yeah, but that's, and, that's a lot of studies showing that right, it's not that much. And then it was it was evenly distributed across yeah. the lower positions, that you, yeah. and you've got that finding as well. And so does Linden from 1989. Yeah. So I think this this idea that when we see bolus below the ramus of mandible, yeah. that it's wrong or impaired is actually a counter to the evidence so i'm gonna i just want to say you guys have jumped into the next month's podcast (laughs) you need to stop at the cliff we're at the cliff the behavior is get the bulls the cliff what happens after is not where we are right now so back it up we'll back it up it's like if we had to rewind like the bolus is now but i have to tell you this is like the hottest topic about this whole idea of when the volitional parts ends with pushing the bolus yeah. back and when the swallow yeah. starts, that transition period is very tough for people. It's like teenage years, right? Like you want them to be independent. Yeah. You know, they can pick their life up. So I would like to say that we should go around and suggest, or maybe we won't, don't all have something to say to close this out, something we wish everybody knew about this behavior. You can call it basic time retraction, posterior lingual propulsion, oral phase, or squeeze back, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Is there something you wish people knew about this behavior or you wish you knew about this behavior? 
Uh, for me, I think it, it's both what I wish I knew, what I wish the field knew, and what I wish clinicians knew. It's it's kind of all together, but the just how important the um, the role of sensation is during this process. I wish we had a better way to measure it, um, whether it be at the bedside or whatever. If there was some, even some sort of um, screening technique to get a better idea of somebody's level of sensation. And so you mean the bolus, sensing the bolus, correct? Yeah, yeah. sensing the bolus, just, At just the integrity of the system, sure. basically. You know, you right now, you, you can, you know, place a swab on the tongue and say, did you feel it? Like, we just have these really crude ways of trying to get at it, mm-hmm. and I don't think that it's um, really giving us a lot of useful information mm-hmm. on... Um, correlating that to what's happening and tied into that is not just knowing where the bolus is but knowing where the bolus is relative to the tongue so Mm -hmm. even if you don't have a bolus in your mouth you know where your tongue is when you're talking etc we don't understand a lot about sensory information about Mm -hmm. proprioception of the Mm -hmm. tongue proprioception yeah i mean we know even less about i mean we have to know where our tongue is in space but we don't really understand how to study that well but i guess I'll, i'll just give something practical in relation to sensation is for clinicians that are doing seeing patients at the bedside or seeing patients in fluoro to before you even start assessing their pharyngeal phase of swallowing is to look inside their mouth and to clean their mouth and to make sure that it's Mm -hmm. in an optimal state to be able to sense the bolus appropriately. I think that that's something that's really practical. Maybe gets, yeah. I mean, if you work in a hospital, you know, every mouth you look into is, um, usually has dried secretions and they haven't had, They've been NPO, they've had an endotracheal tube in for a long time. And I think sometimes that aspect can just get brushed over a little bit, mm-hmm. but it's so integral to, um, you know, the maximizing the, the system. So cool. that would be my piece. I have two. Go for it. Um, I think the first thing is when does this happen relative to the bolus? Mm-hmm. So um, I think, and you highlighted this earlier, that the bolus is already beyond this point um, and it's it's chasing the bolus down, and I think that that's really important. And then I think um, the other thing is that I really question whether an instruction to a patient to think about pushing their tongue further back mm-hmm. or um, or emphasizing pullback of their tongue, whether that does anything helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't seen a study that proves that it does anything helpful um, with measurement. And I think it's counter to actually what's going on. Well, I too have two. <laughs> you both have PhDs. We're allowed to have two. Allowed to have two. I, <laughs> when I get my PhD, I get two comments. Right. Just I got one. another I got to graduate. <laughs> In two months, you get two. So the first one I have is I don't understand, and this brings in your sensation point, I don't understand the relationship between the readiness of the bolus. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about something that needs to be broken down. Let's talk about green beans. Mm-hmm. We're not eating those whole. The swallowing threshold, which we talked about in the previous podcast, yes. there is a relationship between the, the swallowability of the bolus, meaning it's broken down, and when this behavior begins. Like, all right, this is good. I'm going to swallow. I don't think we understand that well enough in healthy people. And whether or not that perhaps is an issue with patients, it's really a sensory thing where they're not timing the feel of the bolus being ready with this behavior. Maybe that's a big problem with them with why they have things like delays or things get stuck. Maybe there's residue because they're pushing back a bolus that's not yet ready to go. You guys yeah. are just setting up all my talks. <laughs> Woo-hoo! So, and I went, so, okay, wait. So, just let, so I, okay, go for it. I'm giving a talk on Thursday lunchtime <laughs> on, on... Oh, it's Thursday? 
I feel like I need Thursday to get this podcast. Wait, I, I feel like I need to get this podcast out I bet tonight because you have so many now, commercials yeah. <laughs> um, on um, uh, on food oral processing. And cool. I would argue that we currently don't measure food oral processing. We do not at all. No, you're right. And um, you, I think, in that previous podcast, yeah. referred to the the work by Perron and yep. Roda in France, who yep. look at food oral processing in healthy adults, healthy young adults yeah. with the with the wheat flakes. Yep. Um, and so I'll be talking about other studies like that. There's actually quite a lot of work in food oral processing that looks at different food consistencies. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's cool is that uh, when they reach this ready to swallow point, mm-hmm. which is challenging to measure, to measure, yeah. um, it, particularly in people who might not be able to follow commands, mm-hmm. um, the particles of those boluses and the degree to which the bolus is is mixed mm-hmm. in a, a cohesive bolus is is pretty common. Right. Um. So we get it to that that common point. And here's why this matters to me for two things. One is, I think it will vastly change if we understand this food oral processing phenomenon and food science and swallowing. If all yeah. of us scientists get together we could actually determine whether or not this idea of regular diet mechanical soft should go away, right? So, right? Well, wait, so, let, me, let me say why, because I don't think they're going to understand uh, well, very so, clearly. So just let me... Okay. Alicia's going to have to gonna tear start moving apart. between them for um, those that can't uh, see what's happening. The ITSI framework. Yep. Um, the Minston Moist Level 5 ITSI framework, mm-hmm. we believe, mm-hmm. represents mm-hmm. so that the properties of a, of a Level 5 Minston Moist Bolus mm-hmm. are... A swallow ready bolus. This is what I'm saying. But hey, guess a, what? It is but wait, the definition of right. It. So wait. that if you were to take, if you were to repeat, and I actually think we need to do this, but mm-hmm. if you were to take the Perron study mm-hmm. and you were able to train people to bring back the bolus just at the point where they think they're ready to swallow, mm-hmm. and you were to apply ITSI texture testing to that bolus, mm-hmm. it would test at level five. Can you just say is, what ITSI stands for? Can you just say I what I E D S IDDSI is the International Dysphagia Diet Standardization Initiative. Because not everybody knows what it is. I'll right. And if you don't, think. you need to go Google it. And okay. a, level, <laughs> a level five minced and moist bolus is characterized by um, a bolus that has lumps or particles in it of four millimeters maximum size or less. Okay. And um, the Perron study would largely agree with that, mm-hmm. at least by one quarter into chewing, that people have reduced a bolus to that size. But it's also um, a bolus that sticks together in a cohesive... Sure, that's important. So that you've at, been able to add saliva into the bolus in mm-hmm. the case of normal chewing. But, but can I just say, and then we have to go after my, yes. get my second point in, it is really important to me because it's possible that people who can at least get a bolus at that level, maybe it's already that that yeah. texture when it comes to their mouth and they're just savoring it, they don't need to break it down, Correct. versus an Oreo cookie that actually needs yes. to be broken down. Yes. It's possible that if we can test at the bedside people who have the capacity to bring that or that Oreo cookie to maybe that more mashed potato thing that they too can eat regular food. Absolutely. Because but the thing is we are just assuming that they don't have the capacity to break the food down and thus these things yeah. are gonna happen, but we don't test it and it's testable. I, I think you are pointing to a huge gap in our practice. Yes. Oh, 100%. That we actually have no we when we say to somebody, I think you need to modify the food side of your diet. Mm-hmm. We then have no guidebook. Yeah. And we, we make conservative, helpful, friendly suggestions like puree. Like look both ways or, before we cross the road. Right. But we but then 
I don't feel that we know then how to tell if somebody has improved from that point and can right. advance. But with the, the basis for wait, that recommendation wait, in the first right. place. We don't even know if what they swallowed was already broken to a puree no, anyway. We just assume puree is safer, safer than, a, than yeah. a graham cracker right. when we didn't have them spit yeah. it out and say, well, this is the same so consistency there, as applesauce. You there should be is, fine. There is no way to do this other than inspecting the I understand that. Spread. I understand that. And I think we're going to have to get over our... <laughs> are you know disgust at looking at it's not, i don't think it's that i don't think it's that because these are the same people many of these clinicians are in people's mouth pulling out crust. They are. I, I don't think that they're yep. squeamish i think there's just so, not a standard way right. to help them to do this yeah. and i think that needs to be developed. so i think we need to do that i'm i'm let's do it hoping yeah. head that way and um yeah and okay I, so can anyway, i say my second, second point because i know that we can do a whole podcast <laughs> on diet modifications and we should we we're gonna have to join you on that one the <laughs> other one is i would very much like to know whether or not training and getting better at lingual strengthening with the IOP actually improves the physiology of lingual propulsion or base of tongue retraction, et cetera. I know that there are studies suggesting things like residue can change, et cetera, but the actual physiology of the tongue, does it translate from pushing the task associated with pushing your tongue to the roof of your mouth to this complex behavior we've been talking about for an hour? And there's so many studies suggesting tongues need to be stronger. And you would assume it would have to do with these swallow-related things. And I'm still not sure that there's a direct link saying when your tongue is stronger, these intricate other swallow-related behaviors follow. I think that's a great point. I think that we hit a wall of measurement mm -hmm. at some point. Um, and, and I also think we hit a wall of sample size in terms of how many things we can measure in a single study yeah and, um, but I think it's a great question um, I'm just not sure that how I would measure it I don't but do we I think have the to problem measure is that we don't I think the problem is that we don't have a way to measure this all comes down to sensation we talked about we don't have a really way to measure that properly Although perception is really closely linked, right? People can actually perceive pretty well if we can figure out a way to test it systematically as scientists. But also, we don't have a very standardized, objective way to measure this behavior on video fluoroscopy. Well, I don't know. I like it. Um, I mean, when you think about the tongue our, being a hydrostat, yeah. you can put markers down the midline of the tongue, but what about all the other movements? You'd have right. to do like multi-plane video fluoroscopy, and you know, that's still, they're now swallowing with this, these things stuck on their tongue. So your tongue is so sense, yeah. so sensate that how is that messing up with messing the behavior yeah. up? But when we do studies of tongue pressure training, we tend to choose people who um, have tongue weakness plus. Right, so they have tongue weakness plus aspiration, or they have right. tongue weakness because they've had a stroke, and when we decide to measure aspiration, I'm not quite sure why that's our <laughs> preferred outcome measure, but it is. Right? Although the base of the tongue plays a role in airway protection, absolutely, so it could and I think we're still hunting it's for that so, link. Yeah. But I actually don't know, and you're making me think I should go and look at this. You know, if I look at people, um, swallowing some standard bolus that requires good tongue-based retraction mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. hypopharyngeal, I mean, oropharyngeal occlusion, um, and we're to scale the, the integrity of this yeah. uh, closure 
based on their tongue strength, mm-hmm. I don't even know whether we would find a relationship. I right. think you're right. That's why I'm saying. <laughs> and don't, so don't you think we need to move away point. from testing strength and exactly. test, test the contact? I mean, we have crude ways of measuring the amount of contact, but I think that if we can be more sensitive and being and able I, to measure that, yeah, that's more important to me than the strength. I mean, we just well, spend and time it could talking also, about it. It could easily fall into the category of things that are submaximal, right? So, oh, for sure. So much of what we do with the tongue mm-hmm. is well below the kinds of pressure thresholds or, or force thresholds that, we, food that we're working on in training. And the other thing is we're talking about a bolus that wants to go in that direction yes. anyway. And by the time there's pressure, this is why it's so important to emphasize this. By the time there's pressure across the tongue, the velum, and the pharynx, at that maximum point, the bolus is already below it. Yep. So yeah. it's really about getting the the bolus off the tongue if it's sticky where you need the hard palate and it's contact sequential contact with the hard palate and sensation to know where all parts are or just channeling it safely where sensation is critical in a thin liquid bolus and creating a pressure gradient that's right that you have high pressure behind the bolus and lower pressure ahead of the ahead of the bolus that's right and you're just the laws of physics are going to suggest Mm -hmm. that the bolus is unlikely to go in the reverse direction exactly and that's why active bolus containment is critical for this behavior meaning you can keep the bolus together it's not sloshing all over your mouth yet you're able to move it this is all of these aspects are things we need to study a lot better and we are so out of time right now you guys this was fun (laughs) it was fun fun. and you should see us jumping up and down in this hotel room in san diego (laughs) and our recording device is on an ironing board right now like it is just nerd fest over here (laughs) thanks for joining us you're welcome thank you for having me